World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the Americhicks with Kim Munson World War II Project. As many of you know, I had the great honor to go with a group that took four D-Day veterans to Normandy in 2016 and returned back to the States realizing that it's so important that we hear these stories. Each story is individual, it's unique, and it's very special. And I've had the great honor to interview over 100 World War II veterans. Be sure and check out my website, americhicks.com. All of the shows are archived there. And so uh, if you want to go back and listen to some of those other stories, I would highly recommend it. Uh, Be sure and follow me on Facebook and Twitter as well. And sign up for my newsletters at americhicks.com forward slash Kim. Very excited to have on the line with me, Ralph King. Uh, He is a World War II veteran. Ralph, welcome to the Americhicks with Kim Munson. Thank you. So, Ralph, tell us a little bit about you. What uh, what was your responsibilities? Where were you uh, during World War II? Well, I uh, I joined the uh, what was the paratroops. I first went in in '43, uh, right out of high school in January, and I went to uh, took basic training at Fort Knox and the tank, the armored force, and then I. Uh, uh, we made a tank driver out of me, and and I didn't care for the tanks, but I, so I enlisted for the paratroops. So I went to Fort Benning in Georgia and took parachute training in March of '44. Uh, uh, time I got away from the uh, basic training and then the tank uh, battalion. Uh, there I was assigned to the 541st uh, Regiment up at Camp uh, McCall, up next to Fort Bragg. And uh, then the D-Day was coming off, and they hit the unit for replacements. Uh, and, of course, I'd been a new one there, uh, and uh, they were shipped out on the Queen Elizabeth. And uh, I landed in Scotland on D-Day, June the 6th of '44. Uh, the same day the 101st jumped, I had been assigned to the H Company of 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment, which was part of the 101st Airborne Division. So I missed the, the Normandy jump as I landed the same day they jumped. And as they came back, then I was, got my assignment back into the company, H Company. And uh, we had two dry runs to jump, which was called off because Patton moved too fast and overrun a position just next to Paris where we were supposed to jump that. And again, we went to the marshalling area, and uh, the jump was supposed to have been in Tornade, Belgium, and uh, that was also called off. People was already in their parachutes, and some of them was already airborne at that time when it got uh, canceled. Wow. And on September 17th, Market Garden operation in Holland. Uh, it was a jump in Holland on the 17th of September. Uh, they call it the, the Ardennes up there, and uh, Market Garden was the name of the operation. And uh, we jumped there, and the, I had jumped to the town of uh, uh, 
Well, I got wounded in the time of the echo after jumping there on the DZ Zon drop zone. Uh, and they, uh, we went into Einhoven the next day, and the British tanks were supposed to uh, marry up, and we, the airborne divisions, the 101st and the 82nd Airborne, and the uh, British and uh, the Polish paratroopers were to jump also on up at Arnhem. We was to jump 101st at Einhoven. The 82nd was jumped up at Nijmegen, and uh, uh, the British and Polish unit was up at Arnhem, where they, you heard about the bridge too far. Right. That's where they got uh, eliminated up there. So they, it was not a successful operation, to say the least, because uh, we was just going up and down the road, and the tanks did meet up with us, but... The Germans would cut the road, and we'd uh, march up one way and open a road and go back the other way the next day. Seems like 15 miles one way, and it'd be the same route coming back. But I got wounded there on the ninth day, on the 26th, 26th of September, and got evacuated back to England. And uh, it, uh, it was just a slight wound. I didn't even really know I was hit that day, but... Uh, it was a tree burst into a hedgerow, which had killed three people right next to me. But I, I guess adrenaline in my body, I never even felt the going through my field jacket and into my right wrist. There was a piece of metal there, but they, they couldn't get it out at the aid station, so they evacuated me back. And they, England, uh, they tried to operate and just give it up, too. So I've still got that little piece of my arm as well. As of today. Oh, oh my gosh. And you're going to be 95 this year, right? Uh, yes, I'll be 95 in August. Yeah, I was not. I was, uh, well, no, I turned 20 years old in August of 44. Oh, so wow. I was 20 years old at the time I got hit. And uh, so uh, anyway, I went went back to the unit, and uh, they was at Mormelon, France. They pulled it out of. They pulled out the 101st back in at Montmelon in France, and uh, and I joined them there. And I was there about well, ten days or two weeks or so, and that's when the Battle of Bulge came off. And the Battle of Bulge, they trucked us up to Bastogne, and just overnight, they when they hit them up there, they trucked us up there, and I was deployed in a little town of Foy, right outside of Bastogne. And uh, so I was only there three days uh, after I got up there, and I got wounded again. Another tree burst hit me from a tank, tanks fired in the trees. We were supposed to make an attack into the town of Foy, and uh, we didn't have nothing to knock the, the, the uh, out. We didn't know the tanks were down there, and when we got out about 100 yards from the tree line that we was in, the tanks pulled out, and we was facing them, so they gave us the order to withdraw back over the hill, and which I did, uh, which the company did, and uh, uh, another another unit had moved into our place and took over our foxholes that we'd been staying in that night. So I got over the hill, and and there was a trench there that I set my machine gun down. I had an A6 machine gun with a bipod on them, uh, and uh, that's uh, when a tree burst didn't come in, they was firing all the trees, 
a piece of shrapnel from that come down and hit me in the shoulder and broke my clavicle. And that was it. It was the same day. It was the 21st of December of 44. And I uh, uh, was uh, the, the, the 101st got surrounded that day. So uh, I was laying there on a stretcher, and I laid there until the 28th, about a week, before they was able to evacuate me back to England. So really, that's the story. I, I got back. I, they wanted to evacuate me back to the States, and I didn't want to. You know, as a young kid like that, that was our mentality. We wanted to stay there with a unit. And so uh, they wouldn't sign me back. They said, well, I couldn't jump no more. And uh, uh, But they was in a replacement depot. was moving us up. And I got moved from... Uh, from France all the way up through Belgium, and I was in Bonn, Germany, uh, when the war ended on the 8th of May of 45. Uh, so I got back down to my unit, which was, by that time, I was down in Salisbury, uh, Austria, uh, next to Birch's Garden, Hitler's hideout. And, uh, and we come back to France after staying down there a while and uh, made my first jump back in France. Uh, well, they, uh, I was back in London, Germany, when the war ended. Nobody knew what to do, but I spotted a jeep walking through, uh, coming through, and so I flagged it down, and he signed me out. It was a lieutenant from the Judge Advocate Corps. I took going around taking depositions, and I traveled with him, and he uh, supposedly destroyed my papers, he said, but I couldn't jump. So it didn't break my clavicle clear through. It just took a piece out of it, so... Anyway, I got back to my outfit that way and then ended up uh, even staying in service for 21 years afterwards. Yeah. I had to uh, uh, come back. I was out 15 days. Well, they broke up the 101st in uh, France, and uh, so I came home and got discharged, and 15 days later I reenlisted. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is amazing. Then I went back to the 82nd. Uh, and uh, was signed to the division headquarters as platoon sergeant of the, uh, the defense platoon, and they was taking volunteers to go to uh, Frankfurt, Germany. They left the 508 Parachute Infantry Regiment over there as uh, Eisenhower's headquarters in Frankfurt. So I, re I uh, signed for that, but I, my time was there very short. I got there in May of 46, and in November, uh, I guess it was November, they disbanded that outfit. We, they could no longer keep uh, airborne troops on the continent of Europe, according to the conference, uh, the Delta, the Yalta conference. Uh, so they disbanded that unit, and then I come back uh, to the States and went to the 50, 504 of 82nd. Mm -hmm. And I stayed there then. I was a, a staff sergeant all that time. I was staff sergeant right after the war ended. And uh, uh, I, I, when the Korean War broke out in 50, I was still there. And they took, I was acting first sergeant, and they took all of my NCOs away to form the 187 that went to Korea. Uh, they made two combat jumps over there, but they didn't want me to go. Uh, I was, uh, they didn't want a first sergeant. I, by that time, I'd made master sergeant. Uh, so, anyway, they was going to reactivate the 508, 
and make it a regimental combat team. And so I said, well, let me go to that. So I went down to Benning, and we was training to go to Korea to rotate with the unit that was over there. And in 52, they called it off. And then in 52, I decided to uh, uh, go to the Special Forces, which I'd heard about. It was something new. So in 52, I signed up for it and went to, back to Fort Bragg and took the training in 52. And then in 50, up to 53, the end of 53, they shipped us out. And I was in Germany then for four years during the Cold War. We uh, were the Special Forces, 10th Special Forces. And after that, I come back in 57, uh, I decided I, uh, they was, well, they broke us up over there, but I was elected to stay uh, and was one of the higher teams that stayed there, an FC team, uh, and uh, made me elect the first sergeant of the unit. We just had one company. We went over with seven companies, about 750 people, and they broke us down then to about 200 uh, team, and I was uh, to stay there with them. But that's when I come back, I decided, well, they're going to break up the, uh, the Special Forces, so I'll get something else. So I put it for missile school, and I went out to missile school. In the meantime, they put me in for E-8, uh, Special Forces, and in 58, I come out on orders after I was already on orders as an E-7 Master Sergeant to go to uh, missile school. So I took training, went out there, and uh, the Hercules, the Ajax missile, I was uh, trying to uh, prep them uh, to go out on the range. And after that, uh, uh, they assigned me to, down there, and I worked at prepping the missiles, prepping the missiles, and then they, uh, DA, Department of Army, called it off as far as being a E-8 job. They accepted me at a school, six-month school, and then they called it off. They said it was going to be an officer's job. So they put me back in S-3, one of the battalions, and I took action to try to come back to the Special Forces. Uh, and in the meantime, they, they pulled me up and made me the sergeant major of the first guided missile group. And even, and I told them I didn't, they put me in for promotion, and I said I didn't want it, I'm going back to Special Forces. But anyway, they went and pulled me up there anyway, and I ended up having it about the third time that I put in, and they disapproved it. Uh, I had somebody walk it through that I knew from over in Germany when I was with there, there. He was trying to get back as an officer, and he walked my application through, and right away they accepted me and I was on orders to get out of there. But in the meantime, they promoted me to E-9, the Sergeant Major E-9. And anyway, I got back to the unit, and uh, we was already sending troops to Laos. And uh, when one of the packets come back, I, I finally got on an order for that to go to Laos. I went to Laos for a six-month tour there during, uh, during Operation White Star. And when I come back from there, as about March of 62, I guess it was, uh, they, they formed up a new Special Forces group, the 8th Special Forces group, and they, uh, uh, they had them down in Panama. We already had troops uh, down there. It was just a paper uh, transfer 
from the 7th Special Forces to the 8th Special Forces, and uh, they made me the Sergeant Major of the 8th Group down there in Panama. And I was down there, as I say, we all had all troops in the Latin and South American countries. And uh, I didn't really care for that. Uh, and so I, de I decided I could, I was on an indefinite enlistment, and uh, I could get out at any time I had my, uh, I had enough time in. So I retired and came home here to Ark. Uh, this is not my home. I came from South Dakota. Uh, Lee Deadwood, South Dakota, okay. where I went through high school, straight into the service. After that's another story. We uh, after Pearl Harbor, you know, you, all of us people there in our Lead High School, right next to Deadwood, uh, as all we could think about was get in the service and get a weapon and go after Hitler and told you all. And anyway, that's what happened. Uh, we, we got out in January as we had enough credits to, to graduate. Uh, but three of us went down to uh, Fort Knox and took the training. I wound up in a tank battalion, and the other and he went to the Army Air Corps, and uh, the other and he went to the 1st Armored Division over in North Africa. So that's mostly a story. I don't know whether you want me to tell, want to tell all that at one time or not. But uh. Well, I think that that is really fascinating. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project. We are talking with Ralph King about his experience in World War II. And it's absolutely fascinating. There's so many questions, too, that uh, I, I want to ask you now, Ralph, uh, as we go through this. We are going to go to break. And when we come back, let's uh, continue on with that. Before we do that, though, it is a great time to be a sports fan, the NHL, the NBA off playoffs are started. Rockies baseball season is underway, and Hooters Restaurants is my sports headquarters. Hooters is the place to watch all the games. Wednesday is Wing Day. All the wings you can eat for fourteen ninety nine, and their smoked wings are delicious. They're delectable and only half the calories. And Hooters wings can fly. You can have them delivered right to your front doorstep. When my girlfriends come over on Wednesday nights, that's what we do. So order the your Hooters wings to go. Have them delivered right to your front door. Or you can watch the games at Hooters. More information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. Let them know that you know the AmeriChicks, and we will be right, uh, yeah, right back with World War II veteran Ralph King. Okay, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. That is where all of these shows are archived. And to sign up for my email newsletter, we will let you know about upcoming guests and topics. Thrilled to have on the line with me Ralph King, World War II veteran. Uh, started out as a, a t in a tank battalion, was a paratrooper, jumped in at Market Garden. Uh, he was wounded a couple of times. We want to hear about that. Uh, was up at Bastogne with the 101st, served in the Special Forces. Uh, Ralph King, it is really an honor to have you on the line with me. Thank you. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about some of these things in your story uh, because it is quite an adventure. Uh, my first question is: uh, You said you were uh, supposed to be in a tank battalion. You trained for that, but you didn't like it. Tell me why? Why didn't you like that? Well, uh, they had the, uh, the after the training. I uh, went to the battalion. It was Fort Campbell, from Fort Knox to Fort Campbell or Camp Campbell at that time. Uh, 718th Tank Battalion, and uh, I, uh, I was like the driver, and I drove to the van. They even promoted me to the T5. 
a corporal like and uh but we uh, uh, uh what really turned me against it i i heard developments about the tiger tanks that germans had and our our tank the heavy weapon we had was a 75 there was a 90 i think and it would knock out our tank but our tank would never knock out their tank and the, the way they it uh, showed us that the tank, anybody, a rifleman could take a, a log or something and throw it in through the boogie wheels or throw the track, and you was like dead in the water. And besides that, the tank could knock you out, uh, even the front. We had to get to the back of them in order to penetrate anything where their motor was or anything of that nature. So I figured it was a, such a death trap. I'd never even flown on a plane or been in a plane, but I decided I'd rather, well, I've seen a paratrooper walk by, and I said, heck, I think I'd like to go to the paratroops. They're like some sharp outfits that uh, I could, uh, you know, be better off of being uh, something different, and I'd just take my chance of jumping out of an airplane with, and uh, rather than being a tank driver. Because I just figured it was a real death trap. Well, yeah, from what you're uh, describing, um, yeah, that, that that sounds it sounds like that could be the case. But jumping out of airplanes is not the safest thing to do either. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that first jump when you were training. What what went through your mind? Well, uh, of course, I was nervous, I suppose, and uh, action. But that, the training they give you, uh, you know, they make you. You had four weeks of training, and we even had to pack our own parachute at that time. So uh, one week was just physical condition. They took us over in what they call the Alabama area. It was across the Chattahoochee River. It was about four and a half mile away from the river, and they'd run you down to that river every morning and all the way back. So you run about nine miles or double time. You didn't run, really. It's uh, slow, slow to run them. And, uh, and then he was climbing ropes and and uh, making mock jumps out of a uh, mock-up C-47, learning your your position and and get your feet together and all this, you know. Use a parachute landing fall. That's a kind of a roll. And when you hit, you know, you go into a roll. And you so it's pretty good condition. A lot of people got washed out, but unfortunately, see, I. I was on track and football in high school and went straight in from high school, so I was in fairly good shape. Mm-hmm. And if I wouldn't have been, I don't think I could have ever made it either, but they would eliminate people if they fell out, and they'd tell you, you know, try to wash you out. They'd done everything they could. So that, uh, but uh, you were just ready to jump. I mean, you, it was a good thing. You just felt good to get, to, get out there. And after your first jump, well, then it becomes a... Uh, I think uh, you, you, you like to do it, in other words. Wow. Now, you were a replacement. You said that you landed in Scotland on D-Day when the guys were, uh, uh, you know, moving into Normandy. What were you hearing about uh, the invasion, the D-Day invasion, and what went through your mind then? Well, it, it seemed to me like I didn't get much information. I was just a, well, they, they, that's another thing, you know, when they made me a T-5 there in the, a corporal, and when we went to uh, jump school, they uh, uh, signed us up there to this uh, Colonel McAtee's div- uh, regiment, and they give him he put his officers down in jump school. So all the people come in there that had a stripe on there, they signed to his unit. So 
So then they brought, uh, as soon as we got up there, they broke us all back to a private. You know, not without prejudice, you know. He says, you got to earn your stripes here. So they took our stripes all away from us. And while we was there, that was another thing. We made a jump. Of, uh, a lot of people don't know about that. We jumped up on Long Island, New York. Uh, they took our my uh, company and uh, our artillery uh, uh, battalion, and we jumped there by Hempstead Airport. And it was just a problem to uh, check the security of Hempstead Airport. That's the only only jump that I made after jump school. Uh, and uh, it was uh, we come in low over the Long Island Sound and, and jumped there, and they, we had an umpire with us, and and of course it was a successful mission. But uh, I was uh, uh, what did you what the question you asked me now? I forgot. Uh, well, I was just what had what had you heard about uh, D Day? You know the guys jumping over there. What kind of information were you getting back, and what were you thinking about? Oh yeah. Uh, well, after we went over there. Uh, as I said, I, I was just a private, and I never got a, uh, hardly any news that I could remember until they come back and told their stories. But I, I didn't know hardly what was going on, except that the troops were coming back, and most of them had been wounded, uh, but they were, I guess, slight wounds. And I think I was uh, uh, only about six replacements, if I remember right, uh, was needed for my H Company 506. But a lot of companies were, you know, hit pretty bad mm-hmm. and uh, lost a lot of a lot of people. And, of course, we were signed out both the 82nd and the 101st from all of us. We didn't know which one we was going to. We got their assignment after they come back. But I, I never got hardly any news of what was going on. Okay. How did you then get over to the, uh, you know, to the main continent of Europe uh, after D-Day? Uh, after D-Day, they, uh, well, we, we took training uh, from the guys there. They, it was very, I can't remember. We went out on a couple of, a couple of major ones, I guess, and jumped. Uh, but uh, mostly it was just done from all your own men themselves, it seems like. They teaches us, you know, night, night movement, patrolling, and and uh, set up ambushes and, and uh, okay, and then did, like that. That was mostly mostly was night training. Okay, and did they uh, take you across the channel then? And did you land then on the beaches at Normandy? Uh, when we, when we crossed, uh, no, I never I never got to Normandy. Okay, but but when you because uh, you ended up at Market Garden. Oh, so did you? Were you got to Market Garden? You jumped in there. Was uh, did you originate then in England? Yeah, yeah. We flew out of England. Got yes. it. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we, they had what they call a marshal area. You go there, get briefed, you get your draw the application and rations. They usually have K rations for about three days, and even uh, uh, money. You know, converted mm-hmm. money, you know, marks for France, I guess, and uh, Belgium and, or Holland. They were what we had, Gilders, I think was Gilders, was the money in Holland that we had. And so you had some money, to lay, and there, there were, uh, the country is going to be jumping into. Okay. And it was very, very limited, I think, you know, as far as a briefing, exactly what we're going to do, me being a private, 
never got in on much, and I never got briefed a whole lot, it don't seem like. Of course, it was very short, and a very few days at a time. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, you guys were just doing what you're supposed to do. Now, Market Garden, my understanding is, is that you guys, at Normandy, those guys jumped in at night, but you guys jumped in during the day, right? Yes, right at right at noon time on the seventeenth of September. Yeah, there was we jumped in our uh, we landed. My unit was the uh, uh, first echelon in, and the flak uh, we could see it busted around us from the planes, but I guess they hadn't zeroed it in and it was a little off. And we we assembled with all of our personnel, and uh, our mission, of course, was to secure the DZ. So. Uh, we were just deployed around the area, and uh, there was no activity on the ground after we got down there. I think uh, some of them run into a, a something. I think they, there was a house, a farmhouse there, and they went there, and they said, well, there had been three Germans there eating dinner, and they got up and took off, you know, from the uh, civilians that was there. But the civilians were real cooperative. Oh, it was just uh, out of this world how, how they treated us and wanted to. And you could never keep them in the air raid shelters going into Idaho the next morning. Uh, we crossed, they blowed the bridge that so we couldn't cross that same, uh, that same night, that same day. But the engineers put up a footbridge that night, and the next morning at daylight, we got up and started to cross and went into Idaho. And, what was we approached some of them areas where the Germans was retreating pretty good. Hardly any action was taking place. They left a few snipers behind, and they killed some of our people. Uh, uh, next to my company, I remember a lieutenant got killed there. And uh, that was about the first shot that I even fired. My squad leader told me somebody was up there in a window. We was getting a little uh, art. Uh, mortar or artillery fire and thought maybe they was calling it out or something so he told me to fire it the next time somebody appeared at that window so I shot at it but I don't know if I hit anybody it was a couple yard, hundred yards away and uh, they'd appear at the window and doesn't disappear so I don't know what uh, what it was whether it was a Dutch person I don't think it would, would have been but anyway, after I shot, I don't know if I hit anybody or not, but uh, they never did appear anymore. And uh, But we went on into the town, but they, uh, their railroad shellers were filled with uh, the uh, the Dutch people. And as they found out, we as Americans, you, you couldn't keep them down. They'd all come swarming out, just like the war was over. Well, for them, the good guys had arrived, that's for sure. Now, uh, Ralph King, have you gone back to Normandy since the war? Uh, Well, no, I haven't been to Normandy, but I got a call yesterday, and I think the same foundation that took me there. See, they took me in September back to uh, Holland and Belgium, the best defense foundation. Right, okay. And uh, uh, Joe uh, Conway called yesterday. I think you know him. He I do. Me. And uh, I guess he's, uh, he's invited me to go on Normandy. Awesome. Day. So uh, I might get the, uh, the invite coming from Donnie Edwards, who's in charge of it. And uh, if I accept it, we'll probably go on in June to be there for D-Day. Well, that's right around the corner. And I want to give a shout-out to Joe Conway. 
he is how you and I got connected. And uh, Joe and I have never met. Uh, we talk on the phone and we text, but he has such a love and regard for you World War II veterans. And so he's been a great connection for me to get in connection with you guys. So I'd like to say thank you to Joe Conway and, um, uh, you know, really, really appreciate that. And Ralph, I mean, this is all so fascinating. Could you explain to our listeners, I've seen the movie A Bridge Too Far, but can you explain to our listeners what happened at Market Garden exactly? Well, uh, uh, the thing, we took our objectives, the bridges, at, uh, the 82nd, the 101st, both, and uh, they didn't call on the 82nd, which was closer by, to go up there to help them, but they, they jumped right in uh, the line where they, uh, there was a tank unit, a German tank units were uh, occupied, so they almost got eliminated. Now, was they, that was that the Brits and the uh, Polish that jumped in there? Uh, yeah, all right, the British and the Polish brigade. Okay. Yeah, got it, got it, got it. Okay. Uh huh. And they they just got uh, jumped right on top of the tanks, uh-huh. and also they uh, they lost a lot of men there, a lot of fought away until they got on out of there. But it's uh, uh, well, that's as much as my I know about it, except what I read in the, in the books about it. You know. Well, in Montgomery, uh, the uh, British. Uh, general was in charge of all that, and he was just. My understanding is he was just uh, too aggressive, and that does. And you know things got the guys too yeah. thin trying he, to take uh, one yeah, one two extra bridge. And they go ahead and approve it. Eisenhower didn't want to jump there. He didn't want that operation to come off. He didn't think it was going to be successful, you know, and it didn't it didn't figure it was going to end the war like they figured to cut the cut the Germans off and not give them access so they could get out. So that I, he he talked them into it and wanted to operate it. So, you know, he was, he was a, 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 a... He was a person like that. He just wanted to get uh, get credit for it, you know. Okay, okay. And he thought it was going to work. Well, and, and unfortunately it didn't. As, and you mentioned the, the British troops and the um, Polish troops took heavy, heavy losses. Uh, oh, they really had a lot of losses, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Okay, so let's go to you personally, though. Uh, explain to, uh, to our listeners what those tree bursts are. Well, a tree burst is when a shell hits the trees, uh, you know, it explodes on impact. And so from a tank, you know, it's, uh, instead of hitting a tank, another tank or hitting something they're shooting at, uh, it, it, that sets it, sets it off. So a tree burst, like it hits a tree, it's going to shatter, and all the shrapnel from the projectile will be scattered all over the area. And that is what uh, injured you uh, that first time, yes? Yeah, the first, well, both times. The first time was in the, the town of Veckel in Holland, and that's when uh, we, it was like in a hedgerow with trees above us. And uh, it was like an open field away from there where the tanks pulled up started firing at us, and that's when they hit the trees and they get tree bursts that comes down on top of you, and that's what happened with the tanks that come up in Foy up around the Bastogne. Okay. They fired up and they hit the trees and they exploded and, and come down on top of you. Okay, and you were injured. You said you still have that shrapnel in your wrist, right? Well, it's very, very, yes, it is. Yeah, it's still in there. It's just a very small piece, 
and it's not even enough to uh, deter any going through a, a microwave or anything like that. Okay. Okay. Well, you know what, Ralph, we're just about done with this segment. We're going to go to our last segment. There's still a lot of questions that I have for you. This is absolutely fascinating. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks talking with Ralph King, World War II veteran. And uh, we're going to go to break. When we come back, I'd like to hear about Battle of the Bulge. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. We are in our last segment with Ralph King, World War II veteran. Uh, what a history he has. He started out in a tank, a tank battalion, a paratrooper. He was in the Special Forces after World War II. Uh, just really a fascinating story, Ralph. But uh, let's talk about, we just finished talking about Operation Market Garden, A Bridge Too Far. But you ended up with the 101st at Bastogne, which that was pretty tough. You guys took some pretty tough li- uh, losses there, right? Oh, yes. Uh, yes, I did. Yeah, but uh, I got a, uh, I got a, uh, a morning report of the 21st that shows 12 of us going from, uh, from duty to hospital. Uh, I was over there in September, and they got a historian there that he's done a lot of research, and he looked in and even got our morning report that shows our names on there. And so there's 12 wounded at the same time I I got wounded. But back uh, on, the, on the Battle of Balls, when we got the word back in Montmelon, France, uh, that, that's when they, uh, the Germans started making their attack up there. And uh, we got alerted that morning, about 4 o'clock in the morning. And we, uh, they, they just told us we didn't know where we was going or anything else. And, of course, I don't think the 101st was really scheduled to go, as I understand from uh, books that I read, uh, to the, in the Bastogne. Uh, but the 82nd went on past there in a different area, and then they stopped us there at Bastogne. Uh, as the stuff progressed on, but we were trucked up there. They, they, as I say, about four o'clock in the morning. Well, back up, I, uh, my squad leader, Joe uh, Montilio, he won the DSC in Normandy as a as a, a private. Uh, some action they'd done on one of the bridges, and they made him squad leader, even though he didn't want it. And uh, so he was uh, one of the letter, but when we was back in Mormon we all went out that uh, he wanted us to go over and, and explore a village, go across country, get away from no GIs that ever been. And so we went over there and celebrated, drinking, drinking champagne all day long. So we come back to the barracks, I suppose around midnight, I don't know what time, but uh, anyway, uh, I just... I didn't feel nothing, you know, at the mm-hmm. time. But when they learned us at four o'clock, uh, I still had my uniform on. Oh my gosh! Uh, you know, with tie and shirt and, and everything, and uh, they alerted us, and uh, I, I still had it. I just laid on the bed and was sleeping. And so when they learned us, I got up. So they said, "Get up, and if you want to go go to the mess hall, uh, do the." You know, get you something to eat. Well, I didn't feel like eating, but my throat was dry. They had a trough outside, and so I got my canteen cup. That's where you washed up and 
and get your water from out there. So that was it. But the more I drank of that water, it made me feel like I was kind of inebriated, you know. Mm-hmm. So I just got all my battle clothes, my fatigues, my, my jacket and pants right over the top of the clothes I had because it was cold. Yeah. And it was a good thing I did leave them on. I even had the tie on. I didn't even take it off. I had my shirt over the top of that the jacket. So anyway, they trucked us up there, and they unloaded us. And then we walked for I don't know how far to get our our position up there around Foy. But that's my experience going into the Battle of Bulge. And uh, the rest I covered, I guess. Uh, but... Uh, uh, Three days later, I got wounded from that uh, tree burst around Foy. Well, and Ralph, the reason, or I'm I'm surmising the reason that you said that it's good that you left those clothes on is my understanding is you guys did not have the right equipment, you know, the right clothing because it got so darn cold. Oh, yeah, it was a a, a good thing. You know, uh, they cut the tile off uh, when they took me back to Bastogne. Uh, and uh, when I finally got back, well, right away, yeah, they cut it off, and the shoulder wound, uh, my, our runner, Eugene Johnson, he he was there to help me and cared for me, and uh, uh, we, we walked quite a ways, and then we finally got a Jeep, and he put me in a Jeep, and I said, well, uh, like, you're, you're wounded too, I said, and he said, no, well, he, he was hit with a piece of shrapnel and was bleeding somewhere around his ear or side of his face. I thought maybe it was a blood for me, but no, it wasn't. But he got wounded at the same time. But it was a slight wound, and he didn't even know it at the time. Hmm. Uh, Well, and then you you had to be at Bastogne because you guys were surrounded. Even though you were injured, you said that you were wounded. You said that you laid on a stretcher for how many days? About seven days. Yeah, that was the 21st. And I think the 28th Friday, of course, they got the, the seriously wounded, you know, the people with all their missing legs or arms or what have you, the very, very deep wounds. Uh, and uh, But they just treated me with uh, well, our aid station. The whole uh, medical company was captured out of the 101st. So we didn't have it. We all wore a morphine serrette in our helmet. So we had morphine, and that's what I survived on. They, they kept giving me a shot of morphine about every eight, ten hours or what, and feeding the soup and stuff like that. But I laid on a stretcher in this, uh, I think it was out on a rifle range or something, a big, big building. And uh, uh, that's, that's my recollection. But they bombed it Christmas night, Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Germans come over and bombed the end of that, and I was on the opposite end of the building when it happened. I just was lucking out, I guess. I think that you were lucking out. Now, now, Ralph, you know, one of the famous stories about Bestone is regarding Brigadier General Anthony McAuliffe uh, being woken up to by the Germans asking uh, or, or uh, you know, saying you guys should surrender. What's oh, yeah. your yeah, what's your take on that whole story? Well, it's, it's accurate right to the point that I even read that I even named the guy, the guys that I knew. Well, that Colonel Kennard, I think, uh, he used to come to the associations. I don't know what rank he was back then, but he was a colonel. Uh, he went up and done a, I was a colonel, but uh, there was a, they brought him in. They uh, had, uh, they blindfolded him, 
And so they brought them in there. And this and was the Germans left. that were coming in to talk to, um, to ask for the American surrender, right? Right. They brought the, brought the note in there, and it says, you know, and I got a copy of that uh, when I was over there in September, this, uh, 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 this historian over there. Uh, he uh, he had copies of that, and once he got a frame, I think it's from frame and a frame to thing. It gives the answer, uh, you know, what they wanted. And uh, of course, uh, General McAuliffe, I guess his first reaction was he when he said we got got a surrender here, and, uh, you know, notice for the Germans, and he said, oh, oh, nuts, he said, and uh, I got his. Uh, there was a colonel here, Colonel Dallas, who's in a four, uh, S4, which was supply, and he lived to be 100 years old, but I used to take him to VFW post, but he wrote him back in the 70s, and I got uh, McAuliffe, McAuliffe's handwriting, uh, why he come up with a nuts. You know, he said, well, it's just a common thing for her to express himself, but anyway, so uh, at that, he wrote, the, wrote this note. And but I understand from what they said, you know, he just sat there and didn't do nothing. And and one of the colonels at Canard, I think, says, "Well, we have got to give him a reply." He says, well, "What? What are we going to say?" And uh, he said, "Well, I think your first remark would be appropriate." So that's what he did. He wrote nuts on there, and it was taken back to the Germans, and they said, "Well, what?" The, what does this, what does this mean, you know? Well, he says, go to hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. he says, and then of all things, he says, which he, he don't know why he said it for, he says, you know, let it, they, they turn him and let him away. He says, wish him good luck. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, you guys, you guys held. I mean, that was a really big deal because this was uh, Hitler's kind of last hurrah. He was trying to get, my understanding is trying to get to, um, um, uh, fuel dumps or, uh, you know, fuel uh, sources. And uh, if you guys had not held at Bastogne, uh, the mo- the war might have continued on. But you guys, what you did there was pretty amazing. Well, yeah, it really held them off and stopped them because that was the main route through through the area to go anywhere, you know. So the Bastogne was a key position. You know, so there were about seven different roads, I guess, going into there. And so it was a it was a major thing that had to be held, and of course they come through in a couple of days. I think I don't know when the the first relief people come there, but it, uh, these historians just looked in and they've got a, a German account, an American's account, and they're trying to rewrite history so it's per, it's correct and able to talk to the different people. And that's what's happened. Uh, you know, they're they're researching all that stuff because there's one boy. I thought I used to make these conventions, and my platoon leader, who was in Holland with me, uh, Lieutenant Andros, uh, he's passed away now, and, but I wish he'd be there. But somehow, one of the guys that uh, was in my squad, uh, he, he uh, Mike Matua, uh, uh, Ulick, I thought he got hit the same day I did. And this Ron Classen over there looked it up, and... Uh, and found out the morning report on him. I didn't list him to get killed until I think the the fifth of December or fifth of January. And I swear, I, I must have been told 
that he was killed the same day. Oh. Uh, you know, then I, it was in my mind, and he disputed it. Okay. So stuff like that can happen. Yeah, it, it can be, yeah, in war, that's for sure. Um, so anything else you want to talk about regarding World War II? Any personal stories or any stories of your friends? Well, not really. Uh, say, uh, I... I was just a kid, of course, that time. Oh, well, that that's for sure. I'd like to talk just a little bit about uh, special forces. You said they were just starting special forces. What did that entail, uh, Ralph King? Well, uh, we, we really didn't know what we was getting into. I was down at Fort Benning when I heard about it, and some of the guys had already gone up there. And when I decided, I said, well, I don't want to stay here because they called it off of us going to Korea. And most of my men in the company were draftees, and they was only committed for two years. And so they was going to go and release them. And here, after all that training we took, we'd be in the, tra- the, the field for three days and come back in and clean up our equipment one day and back out in the field again and get ready to go to Korea. And that was a good, a great outfit. They'd been a great asset to any any uh, unit that they ever served with, uh, because they was well well trained. And anyway, they called it off. And I said, "Well, I still want to sit here and get to get anybody brand new people coming in and have to start the same old training that which they normally do in the military." You start off with squad training and then platoon training and then company training and then you usually have a field for exercise for the battalion and then you rotate the same thing plus you got to rotate the second lieutenants that come in. They assign you all new, they make them, they was making them all go airborne, any new lieutenant, but then they had to serve about three months under a different captain and make them an official report. They move them to somebody else and see if they could really do the job or they have to get, get rid of them or what, you know. So I uh, I decided I didn't want to put up with that. I, I had good commanders, and I really enjoyed the service. But uh, I just uh, figured I'd go to something different as all volunteer and special forces. And I didn't know exactly what was in for but Colonel Banks, he was with the OSS, and most of our instructors with OSS who jumped in France uh, and the Pacific and different uh, operations there for the uh, uh, during the war. They go in with uh, little teams of only three men, maybe a radio operator and an interpreter, and uh, they try to they start guerrilla warfare, and that was our really mission there, and to go over to. Germany during the Cold War. We took uh, training. We'd be in the field for six weeks at a time, uh, training, and then they sent us to the language school of the country you was going to go to, uh, and then they, uh, uh, well, uh, all kind of training there in the different uh, intelligence schools that I went to, plus a Czech school, and then the teams of the field had to make an area background check in all of the area they assigned to. You make a note of all the rivers and bridges and, and roads and and uh, any factories and all that sort of thing, and uh, make a report on that. And any bridges you drop, 
plans if he had to blow it, how much stimulation it'd take, and so on. And the, the other mission was to set up an escape and evasion net, which each team would do. That would be to pass a down pilot through the internet to get him back to friendly lines. Well, and we had an operation going. We had B-29s, and they they cut like a hole in the back of the plane that you uh, could jump out of, and they could deploy you in behind the lines. And of course, they had to have, you know, they might the 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 idea was to fly a baby in a, a plane formation of 30,000 feet, so you had to be pressurized. But then they'd drop you down. They'd simulate the. Uh, they simulated it was uh, uh, engine trouble or or something or or been hit by flak or what, and they'd drop you down and do contour flying along the tree level until you got to a place where they want to drop you out, and then you'd crawl back there and sit in that jaw hole and wait for them to let it give you the signal to drop. And of course, during the training, I went to. Uh, they sent my team to uh, Missoula, Montana to take smoke jumper school, where we made seven jumps out there. But that, our mission there was just to get acquainted with our equipment, because we didn't need to have jump school, but uh, that was it. You had a, about a 120-foot rope in a overhaul pocket and with a, uh, a helmet on with, uh, with a guard like a football helmet. And so in case you protect yourself there, it could jump in any kind of weather and into the trees. If you got hung up, you could get down. Wow. But well, anyway, I, I volunteered to go. We had uh, uh, stations uh, uh, in Molesworth, England, and Tripoli, Libya, B-29 station. And that was in 56, I think it was. But uh, I went down to Libya first. And uh, two of us then jumped out uh, at night, and uh, the teams on the field, we had them scattered out through Germany, uh, and they would pass, they passed me from one team to another like I was a down pilot, and they'd hide me out during the day in a safe house somewhere, and then they'd move me during the night to the next team. You didn't get to hardly see anybody or know anybody. They weren't supposed to talk. They give you a password to pass on the next one, and that was it. You know? Wow. Oh, my gosh. Ralph, that is absolutely fascinating. We are out of time, though. This has been so interesting to, to learn about your experiences in World War II and then also with the first Special Forces team. So, Ralph King, thank you so much for sharing your story with me. Well, thank you. Okay, so this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project. We've had the great honor to talk with World War II veteran Ralph King, be sure and tune in same time, same place next week. And God bless you and God bless America. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the Americhick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.